Venture into one of the fastest growing businesses on earth right now on Cannabis Economy. Converging with the brightest and best cannabis leaders and luminaries, paving the way to progress your profit margin. Capitalize and compound your cannabis portfolio now on Cannabis Economy with your host, Seth Adler. Betty Aldworth and Amanda Ryman. One's from the East and one's from the West, and they're advocates for cannabis at all points in between. Welcome to Cannabis Economy. I'm your host, Seth Adler. Check us out on Twitter, at CanEconomy. That's two ends of the word economy. A true activist in upbringing and in spirit, Betty Aldworth has advocated on behalf of legal cannabis all over the nation. As executive director of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy, that's the SSDP, Betty is working to galvanize America's future voters and legislators. Amanda Ryman saw how her gay friends were treated and became an LGBT activist. She added animal rights activism. She wound up in Oakland researching medical cannabis before it was a thing, and now she's with the DPA. Betty Aldworth, Amanda Ryman. Enjoy. We do have Betty Aldworth. Betty, thanks so much for uh, giving us some time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we are documenting a oral history of legal cannabis in real time. And as that is our mission, I'm sure you can imagine your name has come up a few times. Well, I couldn't have been any luckier than to been tapped to carry the voice of the Amendment 64 campaign in Colorado uh, as uh, one of the spokespeople and then also as advocacy director heading up the grassroots there. So having been so engaged in that first in the campaign that, that made Colorado the first state to regulate cannabis in the modern era is pretty exciting. Absolutely. And as far as spokesperson, as far as advocacy director, you know, how did you become connected to Mason and Steve and, you know, Brian and everybody that was involved there? So I had been doing medical marijuana advocacy in Colorado for a handful of years before 2012. I started in that realm in 2009 after spending a decade working in the mainstream nonprofit world in Colorado, but had long you know, agreed that obviously marijuana should be regulated for adults. Right. When I began, when I was doing that, that work, the medical marijuana work, I got to know Mason and Brian. And as I became an advocate for sensible drug policy, I got to know them a bit better. And so in 2012, when they were looking for someone to talk to women specifically about cannabis. I was fortunate enough mm. to be in the right place with the right knowledge. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. So Coloradans for Medical Marijuana Regulation, that's the group that you are speaking about when we're talking about well, this, Well, I've yes? been doing consulting for some period of time with a handful of different folks in the medical marijuana space. And one of those pieces of work that I did was to try to fix Coloradans for medical marijuana regulation after some tumultuous early years. Man, that goes back. (laughs) So that was a while ago. But I had been doing uh, sort of generally work in the space of medical marijuana policy, community relations, public relations, advocacy, that kind of thing, really trying to help to open up the burgeoning medical marijuana industry to 
people who had never thought about it before. And that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about in this space is introducing people who have never thought about medical cannabis as an option to the notion that it might help them either for their serious illnesses, but even also for, you know, general wellness. That's a very exciting realm for me. So I was doing that kind of work and Coloradans for medical marijuana regulation was yes. One of the things that I did in that time. Okay. Well, let's understand how and why this is a passion. Let's what we would love to do is try to figure out where that kind of concept or thought process uh, germinated, was generated. So, so where are you from originally? I was born in Chicago, raised in Southern uh-huh. Nevada, lived in California for a couple of years. And then when I was 19, I moved to Colorado and stayed for a very long time. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So kind of dotted the map to Colorado. Fair enough. How long were you in Chicago? For? Oh, I was born there and we moved when I was like four or five. My parents couldn't take the snow anymore. Got it. And do you remember oh, Chicago of course, or no? of course. Yeah. I even have family yeah. in the cannabis industry in Chicago, and I'm very excited that we are finally going to start to see some movement on safe access for medical cannabis for people in Illinois. Okay. You said, I'm really excited. We've spoken with Tim McGraw, one of the producers there, and it sounds like we're close to having something happen as far as product is concerned over the next couple of months. Is that is that what you know based on having family there? That's Well, my family is on the uh, lighting side, but from what I'm seeing based on news reports and talking to others who are doing work in the cultivation and retail space, that's my understanding. In just a few months, yeah. Illinoisans will have actual medical cannabis produced and available for sale, which is such an exciting thing. I think that as we bring these regulated markets to more and more states, not only are we going to be helping millions of patients, uh, but we're also going to be really moving the conversation forward on regulation of cannabis broadly, as well as you know creating, I think, a healthier society. And, you know, as more patients gain access, we can't help but prove the point, I guess, is, is, is what you're saying there. Sure. Right. So there's this something that happens, I think, in the minds of people, of voters, when you are exposing them to this idea that, hey, cannabis can be regulated safely for adult for medical use. They can't help but think, hang on. We also can regulate all of these other things for any number of different uses. Uses. Why are we locking people up for using, you know, for this one particular item? You know, it's all the the same old things that that we we know so well. Safer than alcohol. It's a waste of government resources, and all of those things really come. All of those ideas really get crystallized in the mind of the voter when they are seeing cannabis businesses behaving responsibly, transparently, and ethically in their own community. Absolutely. And so if we're tracking uh, your timeline and and your route, you said you were born in Chicago, spent four or five years there. Your movements tie in nicely with what's happening in the industry now because you go from Chicago to Nevada in your life at age five, right? It's Nevada. What's that? Not Nevada. (laughs) Ah, yes. Nevada. Okay. So uh, we're in Nevada, Nevada. And in fact, the drafter of the Nevada legislation 
is a close family friend of ours. So Senator Tick Sagerblum has been an incredible advocate for sensible drug policy reform in Nevada, both in terms of medical marijuana as a supporter of marijuana for adult use and looking at some of the ways that we can approach other drug use in a more humane and science-based, compassionate manner. Absolutely. Tick uh, was at the same event that you were at in August of last year, I'm uh, sure you remember. I didn't know that he was a family friend. He is, yep. And I'm so pleased with the way that Nevada is coming along in terms of developing a safe access methods for patients there. Unfortunately, it was a little too late for my grandmother who passed of ovarian cancer when I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, when Nevada still was a total mess in terms of their medical marijuana program. So many people don't know that Nevada was one of the early states to come along with a solid medical marijuana program. But because the access wasn't there through regulated markets, it was tremendously difficult for people to access that marijuana, the medical marijuana. And, you know, when it came to my grandmother's care, my mother was baking cookies in her kitchen and my mother's never used cannabis in her life. So it's, you know, it's a really challenging setup when there isn't that regulated market, as we all know. So Nevada's coming along. We should see stores open there very soon, Illinois. And of course, I'm lucky enough to live in two of the five places in the U.S. where marijuana is legal for adult use. Mm -hmm. And you're speaking of Colorado, of course. Mm -hmm. Colorado, where my honey and my cats are. And Washington, D.C., where my team and my office is. To do a, a part two sometime soon. But for this morning, uh, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, Seth. Excellent. Time to converge listeners to our product and service supplying sponsors. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, <laughs> More flavor. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
Commercial consumption completed. Now back to Cannabis Economy, only on CannabisRadio.com. Here's Seth Adler. We have the Amanda Ryman here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very much appreciate your time. It's all about the DPA, and you said you're uh, you're also teaching some summer school at Berkeley, and you also teach some courses at Berkeley. And is there anything else that we should know about that you're working on now, other than the above? Well, I volunteer at the Cat Cafe in okay. Oakland. Okay. So yeah, that's the other part of my life is my animal rights work. Okay. Good. All right, so a little LGBT, a little animal rights, and then, of course, there's marijuana. uh, marijuana. They all go together. I mean, honestly, I mean, all people really want to do is hang out with their gay friends and some cats and smoke weed. So what what could be better? I know. (laughs) So but for me, and I have to I have to admit this to you. I'm not a cat person. I just it doesn't. Well, this interview's over. Okay, exactly. Well, it's it's physical. I am allergic. Yeah, that's what they all say. It's true, though. I start to sneeze. That really means I'm afraid of cats. Well, the sneezing. What's with the sneezing then? That's a fear reaction. It's fear. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I'm I'm absolutely willing to admit that I am fearful of cats. Okay, well, as long as we have that settled. Yes, good, and we can move on. Yeah. All right, great. So, where did it all start? You are, uh, as we just learned, based in Oakland, Berkeley's. You know, right, right in that uh, fine line, Alice Waters territory. Yes, right? Alice Waters territory for sure. Well, you know, it really started for me when I was a graduate student of social work in Chicago. So I'm originally from the Midwest. Oh, you are? Um, I am. I grew up in a fairly small town in Indiana called Carmel, Indiana. It's about 20 minutes north of Indianapolis. We always said that we were not Carmel by the sea. We were Carmel by the cows, which was totally (laughs) true. So I didn't really have a lot of exposure, not only to drugs growing up, but to really social justice issues, right? Like that wasn't really a big thing because we were all white and it was a very homogeneous population. Population. People had the money they needed. Yeah. They were all Republican. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't the kind of like a hotbed of social issue. Right. And then in 2002, or sorry, in 2000, I started grad school in Chicago in social work. Yeah. And I started studying drug policy. And it was primarily because in 1998, Students for Sensible Drug Policy had their first national conference yes, at George did. Washington University. Right. And I was interested in this issue because I was taking a class where we learned about the amendment to the Higher Education Act that happened in 1998 that said that you could no longer get federal funding for college if you had a drug conviction. Mm-hmm. And given that I was in social work school at the time, I was really struck by how that would impact potential clients of mine, you know, people that were trying to get their lives together, people who had had, you know, criminal justice involvement and were trying to get education and how this would negatively impact them. Mm-hmm. So an SSDP formed and said, hey, we're going to have this conference, I was like, well, this is a great opportunity to learn more. So I went to D.C., and it was the first time that I had been in a room with a bunch of other people that thought about social justice and drugs. And it was a really empowering experience. And it's funny because now when you look around at people like Troy Dayton at Arcview and Chris Crane at Forefront, right. like we all were from SSDP. Like right. this is where we all cut our teeth, right, in this movement. And so, you know, that really, in you know, it really empowered me that maybe I could actually go and make a difference. So I went back to Chicago with this idea that I was going to get my master's in social work and that I was going to do counseling with people that that were on drugs that needed help because, you know, this was kind of a way to empower them and, and to, to really work with this population. 
But as I started studying more about the drug policies, mm -hmm. I realized that until we change the policies, like sitting in a room with someone for an hour and talking to them about their issues is a drop in the bucket yep. if they're going to go back out into an environment where everything's stacked against them. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I really needed to change the policies. Like it wasn't just going to be about helping the people. It was going to be at actually changing the landscape. Well, I was very aware that being a woman, it was going to be difficult to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, women in academia, women in science, women in policy, you know, we're not often taken seriously. And so, you know, I don't know if this was the right answer, but I said, you know what, if I get a PhD, they'll have to listen to me. Like that will be like, Dr. You are, exactly, yeah. exactly. You are the expert. You right. know, it doesn't matter. You know, everything else doesn't matter. So I applied to Berkeley. Mm -hmm because they were a very progressive school in this area. And there was a professor there that I really wanted to work with, Lorraine Medanik, uh -huh. who was in the School of Social Welfare, and she was just like this internationally known researcher in alcohol and drugs. And I got in, and I was kind of shocked. And so I went to Berkeley, and in 2002, I moved to Oakland. And I was coming from Chicago. I mean, we knew there was medical marijuana, like we saw it on the news, but we didn't really know no. what was going on yeah. in Oakland, California in 2002. And I was just in awe. I mean, there were these little cafes. I mean, Oaksterdam was a neighborhood. It wasn't a university. Right. And it was a neighborhood that had previously been extremely shut down. There wasn't a lot of commerce. There wasn't a lot of foot traffic. There weren't any restaurants. You know, folks didn't hang out there. And it was right in downtown Oakland. And it really started to, to turn the city around. And I saw that. Mm. I joined up with SSDP at UC Berkeley. And I became a medical marijuana patient, like a lot of people do when they move to California when they are cannabis consumers. You know, I had legitimate health issues that I'd been using cannabis for. I had digestive issues. I have arthritis. But I had never had it sanctioned before. So I went and became a medical cannabis patient. And then I started going to dispensaries. And this was what really set it off for me. I mean, I think this is what really set me on the path that I ended up following, was that I, I would go to dispensaries. And back in the early 2000s in San Francisco, dispensaries are pretty much like a cross between a rec center, a summer camp, and a bar. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people. A were, traditional rec center. A traditional say. rec right, center. Yes. Right. <laughs> like where people would go and they would hang out and they would do art projects and they would have, play bingo and they would have coffee and, and they would read books right. and they would share food. And it was something so much more than the cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was not being represented in the media. I felt that the media kept showing this like old, withered, gray bearded person with a joint hanging out of their mouth. And it was so not what was actually going on that I felt that if we were ever going to really change the public's perception about marijuana, we had to tell them the truth about it. Like mm -hmm. we had to show them what was really happening mm -hmm. because the media was not doing a good job. So long story short, I decided to do my doctoral dissertation mm -hmm. on how medical cannabis dispensaries operated as health service providers in an effort to expose all this other stuff mm -hmm. that was happening besides the marijuana. Take a look inside, folks. Exactly. Right. So I spent a whole summer sitting inside dispensaries collecting data from patients. And it was 2005. Yeah. And at the end of it all, I had 130 patient surveys. And just to give you an idea about how far we've come, this is 2005, so 10 years ago, 130 was the largest sample of medical cannabis patients in existence. 130. <laughs> That's all we knew. We knew about medical cannabis patients from a collection of answers of 130 people. Yeah. 
And so I was like, it was the beginning. It was like the ground floor of totally. something that was just going to build and build and build. And so that can, can I stop you there yeah. and ask you what mm-hmm. what were you asking? What was on those surveys? So the survey was fairly long. I had yeah. to give it to the patients. It was about twenty pages and twenty pages, twenty pages, and a lot of folks couldn't read or couldn't see. So I would administer it to them orally. Mm-hmm. So the survey, a lot of it came from Dr. Frank Lucido, who was a uh, is my cannabis physician. Um, he's a family practice doctor in Berkeley. He's extremely well known in the cannabis community as a physician. He's not one of these, you know, two second evaluation by Skype kind of guys, right? Mm-hmm. He's an actual doctor's office guy where you go and you get your blood pressure and you get your reflexes and you get your all the stuff you know physically done. A GP. Exactly. A general practitioner. Exactly. And so he also administers a survey to eat every year. When you go to get your renewal, you have to fill out this extensive survey that asks you not only your demographic information, but it asks you about your cannabis use, how much you're using, if you're using more or less than you were a year ago. Mm-hmm. It asks you if you're using cannabis as a substitute for anything else like alcohol, illicit drugs, or prescription drugs. It's asking you who you've seen medically in that last year with your condition, who you've ever seen pertaining to your condition, just really extensive. A lot of these folks in early dispensaries And it was adult daycare Mm -hmm. for a lot of these places, Mm -hmm. right? These were folks that didn't necessarily have somewhere else to be. And so they would come to dispensaries and they would spend the day there and they would, you know, make a painting and work in the garden and help out. And what they were getting from that was so above and beyond just a high from cannabis that I, I worry we're losing that. And right now in California, Wham!, which is the oldest collective in the country. Mm -hmm. It was really the first model of medical cannabis distribution. And it was patients who were very ill getting together in Santa Cruz and growing cannabis for themselves. They're in danger of losing their land right now. And I feel that everybody in the industry should give them Mm $1,000 to keep it open because Mm -hmm. this is our history. And if we don't keep our history alive, we're not going to survive. Time to converge listeners to our product and service supplying sponsors. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. 
industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com Commercial consumption completed. Now back to Cannabis Economy. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Here's Seth Adler. So you've got really a, an unbelievable background in understanding exactly what it was like on the ground floor with the patients, you know, in their minds and their bodies. You could see them, you know, practicing being holistically kind of, we don't want to say cured, right? But at least Treat it. exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's not over. Right. All right. So in terms of it's not over, I do want to get to kind of what you're working on now and the future. But I do want to dot the line of 2012, 2013, 2014 into this year at DPA and how things have changed. Because, you know, were you there before November of 2012, you know, before the votes? And then how did things change? You know? Yeah, I started in July of 2012. Okay. And we do have offices in Colorado led by the amazing Art Way, um, who's our director there. And so, you know, we were very much involved in what was going on in Colorado. And then we also had a big hand in drafting Washington. So, you know, I was fairly new to the organization at that point, but I was answering a lot of questions about what's going to happen if it leaves, what's going to happen? Like, what do we know? And and what's really interesting that I keep bringing folks back to is that we've had quasi-legal marijuana in California for 20 years. Like, we know what it looks like, right? We we know what it looks like to, to have to make one stop at, you know, some kind of agency and then being able to go buy marijuana. Like, we've had that. You know, in most places in California, it's fairly easy to obtain marijuana. I mean, I live in Oakland. There's four dispensaries within five miles of my house. Like, there's more dispensaries than there are Walgreens. Right. So... We've had it. Like, we know yeah. what's going on. Steve, Steve D'Angelo yesterday said that there are some groups that have three generations of growers. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really we, – we really have had this culture in California for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think as we move forward and we look at other states, I'm really glad California did not go first. Mm-hmm. You know, with our medical program, pretty much every talk I give, I'm asked, how do we not be like California? Yeah. But to be honest, California's medical marijuana program, it has a lot of issues, but the way it works, it works beautifully. Mm -hmm. You know, the restrictions aren't there. Anyone can become a patient, which I think is really important. So as we move forward, I think it's going to be similar to what we've seen with medical. You know, it's going to be each state taking what other states have done, adapting it to what they feel is going to be right for their populations. Mm -hmm. Now, something that was kind of going to be different is with medical, we saw California start off with a fairly lax and open policy. And then when you look at things that are being drafted today, like Illinois, New York, oh. it's a whole different ballgame. Closed game. fist. Yeah. yeah, it's a whole different ballgame. But Colorado and Washington has started off with some pretty stringent regulations. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily going to become more tightly regulated the way we've seen medical go. But I think it is going to be something that each state is going to have to think about what's right for us. Mm-hmm. So, for example, California outdoor cultivation is a huge issue. Must happen, right? It's a huge issue, right? right? And it's very important. Also in California is this idea, like you said, we have these multi-generational businesses Mm -hmm. and farms that have been around for a long time. We need to help them as seamlessly as possible transition Mm -hmm. from an illicit to licit market. And that's what I think is going to be key in California, where in some of these other states, it's almost like building something new. Mm -hmm. In California, we need to take what we have and we need to transition it into something 
something that's more easily regulated and workable, which is very different than what other states are dealing with. And and you say you're happy that uh, California didn't go first. And as I talk more to folks, it it does sound like Prop 19 not passing is actually – maybe kind of a gift in retrospect, because, for instance, and just specifically, the growers were on, were not with the, oh, absolutely. you know, oh, yeah. and then now they are. Now everyone's kind of on the same page. Yeah, I mean, I would say yes and no. I mean, yes, we definitely did not have as much input from the, from the farming community back with Prop 19, and mm-hmm. that was crucial this time around. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there's still like 10,000 felony arrests for marijuana in California every year. So we wouldn't have had those people in jail. So, you know, I, I want to get it right, right. But again, you know, I, and I say this again and again, I'm at the end of this, all, I'm going to get this tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> We're not running towards legalization. Yeah. We are running away from prohibition, yeah. right? So we can talk all day about taxes and revenue and green rush and golden whatevers. Yeah. But the fact is, is that there's a lot of people still getting in a lot of trouble for pot. Yeah. And those are the people we got to make sure that that's fixed before we start, you know, patting ourselves on the back and being like, look at us and our awesome new industry. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As the fire alarm goes off. Can't smoke pot inside in Colorado, <laughs> folks. Can't do it for real. Like we're going to change that in California, by the way. Yeah. We, we are going to have people. Well, you're going to be able to consume cannabis outside of your home. Yeah, more, more than a few people, the right people are working on consumption as we speak. (laughs) They are. Amanda Ryman, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. All right. There you have Betty and Amanda. Betty Aldworth and Amanda Ryman, uh, two extremely valuable pieces uh, for the cannabis industry. Both of them are doing uh, amazing work, and uh, the industry is lucky to have them each. Uh, very much appreciate being on Cannabis Radio. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Can Economy. It's two ends in the word economy. 